All right, can you hear me? Uh, very well. Good. I just want to get a little bit of a level off of your voice, so okay. if you wouldn't mind telling me how you started your day today. The day started, uh, hopefully, um, but I uh, woke up earlier than I had intended. There, I oftentimes am working in my sleep, <laughs> uh, a, a syndrome that my wife uh, routinely critiques. <laughs> <laughs> Do you talk so, in your sleep? No, I don't talk in my okay. sleep, but I used to keep a, a notebook by the bed. Oh, wow. So I would, could wake up and write down things that I was, the dream work that I was doing. Wow. So that's... That's uh, pretty intense. <laughs> that's pretty intense. Sometimes a little, <laughs> a little too intense. <laughs> Is that good? Okay. Perfect. Oh. Okay. And you don't have to wear the headphones if you don't want to. Now we can just now we can just chit chat. So much the better. Yep, it is. It's more natural to just pretend like this isn't even here. Um well it's really nice to meet you. Uh I'm really well, grateful the, that the, you the pledge is mine. came in and looking forward to talking to you about jazz and your life. Um All right. All right. I maybe unsurprisingly didn't know much about you maybe surprised i don't know um but well, it's been I would, wouldn't wouldn't expect you to <laughs> wouldn't expect you to uh there's quite a lot to learn and i have uh, a lot of questions too just about um a, a lot of choices too along the way like electrical engineering i'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about about things like that but um if you wouldn't mind just introduce yourself for us I'm John Wright, a faculty member at the University of Minnesota for the past 35 years. Uh, prior to that, I taught at Carleton College for a decade. Prior to that, I was an undergraduate and graduate student at the University of Minnesota from 1963 to 1973. I was born in Minneapolis. I'm a baby boomer of the, of the first order, <laughs> born right after the war into the Phillips neighborhood. And my father um, and mother, my mother who taught in uh, Minneapolis uh, public schools, elementary schools all over the north side for many, many years. My father, uh, also born in Minneapolis on my father's side of the family. I'm actually a fourth generation uh, Minnesotans. We have a long family history awesome. here. And in that regard, in fact, my father and my aunt were graduates of North High class of 1934. My aunt, in fact, was the class valedictorian really? for 1934. Um, so there's a long family history. Uh, my mm -hmm. again here on in Minneapolis on the north side and so on. My grandmother was a very close friend and collaborator of, uh, of Gertrude Brown, who was the, the legendary head of the Phyllis Wheatley House here on the north side in the 20s and through the mid-30s for many, many years. So uh, she and my grandfather, for whom I'm named, okay. were very active here locally in the, in the uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm part of, I inherited some of that uh, uh, myself. Sure. Now, before, you had some family members who had gone to the U, right, before you went there. I mean, you had uh, other Yes. Yep. Yes. Again, my father, my aunt, my mother... Um, or all graduates mm -hmm. of the the university. My mother later in life. So I said my father and my aunt, who uh, uh, grew up in Robbinsdale on the fa my grandparents' family farm. Oh wow! Um, they, again, they went to North High you know, again in the 1930s, at a time when there were only a, a, a half, literally a, a, a half a dozen or so African American students at North High. At North High yeah. was it a Predominantly Jewish neighborhood at one point. Well, it was it was mixed. North High was uh, was was very mixed at that okay. point. Um, okay. There was a significant Jewish population, but there were also large numbers of Scandinavians mm -hmm. and uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, Italians and Poles and so forth. Of course, uh, a, a, a routine assortment also of uh, of uh, Anglo's as well. So mm -hmm. it was a very mixed uh, terrain. But uh, sure. uh, the uh, you know, the demographic shifts that later would identify Northside as being predominantly black um, were only just beginning, again, when my father and, and an aunt mm -hmm. uh, were here at North High. Okay. 
when you since you had this whole family history of um, you know family members going to the U and and being at the U, you know anyone who Google's your name, John Wright. Uh, comes across the standoff at Morrill Hall and learns a lot about a really significant his period of history at the U. Uh, I'm curious if, and I mean this is this would be you reflecting on what they told you, but what what was the experience like for your family members going to school there compared to what you experienced then in the mid to late '60s? Well, I had grown up hearing stories about the university, again, from my father mm -hmm. and my aunt and from some of their peers who were also a university, probably the small community of, of black students at the university, again, in the 20s, 30s, and mm -hmm. 40s. And I, I knew that my, my father and my aunt had been active in the very first black student organization on, on campus, which was called the Council of Negro Students which was uh, created in 1936 and 1937, in part to combat the policies of then University President Lois Kaufman and his deans, who were basically trying to turn the, the, uh, the university into a Jim Crow campus. And by to, segregating. And by, by segregating mm -hmm. black students, not allowing them to live in the dormitories, by uh, restricting their access to a, you know, an array of, of campus life activities. And uh, you know, those again, my my aunt, who ended up being the president of the Council of Negro Students, again helped lead the the protest then against uh, okay. Lotus Kaufman and his uh, collaborating administrators. So I'd heard those stories along the way. They weren't the only stories that I sure. heard. Um, you know, that's yeah, there were all kinds of stories again about uh, some of the uh, the creative and constructive sides of life on the the campus at the university during those years. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, in fact, a very uh, interesting but still not fully understood relationship between the university community and the North Side, particularly, in particular the Phyllis Wheatley Center and Gertrude okay. Brown, who I mentioned earlier on, who was a very close friend and collaborator of my grandmother's. And during the, uh, the 1930s, the 1930s, when my father and aunt were students at the university, the university had a, had a, had a convocation program uh, then that brought numbers of major African-American artists and scholars and intellectuals to the university campus. They included okay. Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, James Weldon Johnson, Angelo Herndon, later in the 40s, Richard Wright, and so on. And so the, these were exciting uh, events for uh, black students during those years. And in part, this is kind of a local outgrowth of the, the Harlem Renaissance, or what Langston Hughes called the Black Renaissance of the 20s and 30s, and its mm -hmm. impact on campuses, college campuses across the country, north and south, black, white, and otherwise. So I heard stories about uh, those things as well, again, from my parents and their, mm -hmm. and their peers. Mm -hmm. So if you would, I, I really do want to talk about the standoff at Morrill Hall, and then I do want to move on because I, I know that you love jazz. That's one of the reasons you're here. We're going to talk about some great right. music, and, and you also did tour with a Langston, uh, Langston Hughes show, some jazz poetry. Really would love to talk more about that. But I, but I do want to, to hear more about what happened in the late 60s um, in, in Morrill Hall. Uh, do you think this this is... I'm trying to learn here. Uh, do you think that this was um, a direct result of the assassination of, of Dr. King, or do you think that this would have happened regardless? Well, the situation, I started as a freshman at the university in the fall of 1963. Okay. And not a lot had changed in terms of campus life yeah. for black students since, Weren't they also, since my yeah. parents... Uh, since my father's and aunt's generation, perhaps the most significant things that had happened actually were in were the, in the athletic sphere, because uh, the Gopher football court coach Murray Warmath again, mm -hmm. um, who had moved north again from the deep south from Mississippi, so forth, had broken the color bar in the Big Ten by mm -hmm. recruiting uh, a, a whole cohort of uh, superb black athletes from the deep south mm -hmm. that made it possible for the university to to, uh, to win the national championships and go to the Rose Bowl in 1960 wow. and, and 61. Okay. So that was a significant positive development on sure. campus. But the numbers of black students were still on campus were still tiny. And I think African-American students locally, Af African-American families locally were still 
reluctant in many ways to send their students to a campus that had this history again of of, uh, of, of exclusion yeah. and isolation and so forth. Many black parents still prefer to send their children to other to smaller liberal arts schools or to the historically black colleges and universities mm -hmm. in, in the South. Mm -hmm. So as, as again, as, as a student myself coming in in 1963, there were very, very few black students on campus. I, as an undergraduate, was in the Institute of Technology in the uh, electrical engineering program, and I was the only black student in any of the classes that I intended during the years I was there as an undergraduate. But uh, uh, there were uh, maybe 75 to 100 black students on campus who we could identify at the time, although a significant number of them were athletes from out of state, again, mostly from mm. the Deep South. But there mm -hmm. were some uh, um, you know, multi-generation Minnesotans, a few, number, few like myself in that regard. We had formed a, a, a black student organization on campus uh, called uh, Students for Racial uh, Progress. STRAP was its acronym. And we were involved in those years uh, because those, those are the years, of course, in which the Civil Rights Movement is at a peak, mm -hmm. right? 1963 were, were the, the year before the civil passage of the major Civil Rights Acts and so forth. Mm -hmm. The Civil Rights Movement is, uh, um, you know, is, is at a high point, particularly again, 1963, the, the August of 1963 is the March on Washington. And Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream" speech. And you're but going to school to I'm, college for the first school, time. <laughs> I'm going to school, but that's also, also, of course, an era in which, again, there's an intensifying battle, uh, urban battle in the in the North. As, as our student group on campus, we contributed to uh, to efforts again to the freedom rise in the South, to desegregate Southern lunch counters and mm. pu other f public facilities, and so on and so mm -hmm, forth. But mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Movement was shifting its attention then in those years, again, from the South to the North. Mm -hmm. And so, again, our organization, STRAP, uh, in tune with, uh, with, with that shift of strategy and with the rising um, you know, demand for full uh, citizenship rights and economic opportunities for African Americans, mm -hmm. we're also listening to some of the new, more radical voices that were developing at that time. Okay. So again, those early years, the Nation of Islam was becoming increasingly prominent, the appearance of Malcolm X, as minister of the nation of Islam was happening again in those early years of mine on campus, and uh, the, the the long the, the long hot summers of major urban rebellions in oh, the yeah. 1960s were were taking place summer after summer during those wow. years, and with them, of course, came the uh, the rise of the Black Power movement, which by 1966 and 1967 was in full force mm -hmm. and challenging. The, uh, the leadership and the political and cultural strategies of the old line civil rights leaders. So as young students, black students on campus, we were very much engaged in all of this. Mm -hmm. well, we, in fact, uh, brought Dr. King to the university campus in the spring of 1967, in April 1967, mm. almost a year to the day right. before his assassination. Right. And I was at uh, Dr. King's speech, uh, he gave it on the St. Paul campus, on the green on the St. Paul campus before mm -hmm. a crowd of, of over 4,000. Wow. And it was galvanizing. He, in fact, had come again to, to, to Minnesota and to the university from staying in a tenement on the south side of Chicago mm -hmm. during those years as part of, again, the, the shift of the civil rights movement again from the uh, uh, from the world of of, of de jure segregation of official Jim Crow in the sure. South to the uh, to the northern urban environment, mm -hmm. and he came at a time again when some of the young black students who had been close uh, uh, associates or disciples even of his in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, had formed their own organization, SNCC, <laughs> and figures like Snokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown were began were were then articulating the new cries for black power and a oh. whole new attitude towards the the politics of race relations in this country, which black power represented. So we brought Dr. King in April of 1967. The the following month, we brought Stokely Carmichael to mm -hmm. campus, and Stokely Carmichael gave a major address in Williams Arena. Oh, wow. In May of 1967. Yeah. So this is part of the backdrop. Yeah. Also, in this, in this, in the larger context, and as students, we were in contact with black student unions in the historically black colleges and universities, particularly mm -hmm. places like Howard. Yeah. And the student rebellions were growing in on those fronts also. Okay. And the cries again to to reform the curricula 
of the of schools, colleges and universities, public and private, mm-hmm. north and south, black and white, was was rising. So the mm-hmm. the beginnings of the of the black studies movement lie in those years also. Yeah. So by the uh, the spring of 1968, the following spring, uh, Dr. King is assassinated on April 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a stage has been set for. Um, a major convulsion and a major revolution in uh, American intellectual and cultural and political mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. in fact, the the roots of the Moral Hall takeover of Fall 69 do come directly from the assassination of Dr. King mm-hmm. on April 4th, 1968. I and uh, some members of the Afro-American Action Committee, I can remember very well, we were at Seven Corners in a bar in Seven Corners, the old Sergeant Preston's bar in Seven Corners, when the news came over the airway that Dr. King had been assassinated in Memphis. And it was a Friday evening, and it was late, and we were in a state of shock. Yeah. And over the, over the course of that weekend, uh, major rebellions erupted across the country, mm-hmm. more than 100 American cities. And they were far beyond the ability of the local police forces to contain, contend with, and the Army, the National Guard, had to be called out. Our Afro-American Action Committee, we had changed the name of our student organization from Students for Racial Progress from STRAF to the Mm -hmm. Afro-American Action Committee. That part Mm -hmm. was a a symbol and symptom of the time and the changing outlook. And we met and decided on what kind of response that we could make that would honor the memory of Dr. King and contribute constructively to to social change and educational change. And in that context, I drafted on behalf of the Afro-American Action Committee a list of seven demands that we submitted then to President Malcolm Moose and his administration. Mm -hmm. And the university did what universities, uh, I guess, can be expected to do. They established a a task force, advisory task force, the administration, to study the problem. Sure. And they spent the next uh, eight months or so in the task force, uh, you know, deliberating, meeting, and so forth. And we repeatedly asked uh, for reports on the progress of the task force and got uh, sat- unsatisfactory mm-hmm. answers. And mm-hmm. finally, in January of 1969, we had a final meeting with uh, President Moose's administrators mm-hmm. and it was clear that the, the uh, uh, progress on those demands had been insufficient. At that point, uh, we decided to take nonviolent direct action and to occupy uh, Moral Hall. Mm-hmm. So that is part the, the backdrop of the yeah. moral, moral Hall takeover. And yeah. part of what followed from it, of course, is that three, uh, that three of our, our group members, two of the group leaders, Horace, Horace Huntley and Rosemary Freeman, were indicted by the Hennepin County attorney, along with Warren Tucker, uh, who was also a member but not an official leader of, of, our, of our group, were indicted and ultimately put on trial in Hennepin County Court. For what? Indicted for what? In, in, well, for a number of charges. Okay. Uh, you know, the occupation, uh, you know, uh, um, okay. anyway, there were an array of sure. charges yeah. that were issued by the county attorney at the mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. that also gave us a, 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 an opportunity for an extended exposure to the mm-hmm. To the justice system and the working of the courts and mm-hmm. cases like this. So once you occupied, it happened pretty quickly then that they that they agreed to to make some changes, right? I mean, after you gave yes. them eight months to yes. diddle around or whatnot, they yes. yeah. and you occupied, and then they did cave, so to speak, or make the right decision. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say cave is, is, yeah, is the word. Probably not a good As word. President Moose at the time said. And this is contrary to uh, commentators, an array of commentators who argued that we were trying to destroy the university by, by the takeover. President Moose said that the, the, those uh, seven demands were, quote, eminently reasonable. Mm-hmm. And they you know, included uh, essentially a, a, a call for the university to establish uh, a, a certain number I think 200, as I recall, in, 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 my, in my draft of, of full scholarships for mm-hmm. black, stu- black graduating high school students for the coming year. We asked for the creation of, uh, of, of counseling and advising services, especially geared to the, the needs of black students. We asked for um, an a, uh, investigation of the policies of the athletic department towards black athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because many of them had been constrained for participating in our uh, black student group activities. 
um, you know, by athletic department officials and coaches and so on. So they're not only segregating not only black segregating, people from white yes, activities, they're segregating yes, you yeah, from... Trying to be depoliticized. De- wow. Um, we asked for um, consideration of, the, of, of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s name for the new West Bank Library. Wilson mm-hmm. Library was just uh, being built then in those years. It hadn't been fully named. Okay. So this part uh, is a kind of interesting uh, back commentary on the current debate about names right. at, the university camp- university, at the university campus, with which I'm also <coughs> involved at one level or not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and again, they perhaps the, you know, the, the most significant uh, demands to come out of the out of this process, it was the creation of a Department of African American and African Studies. Yep. That and the creation of the Martin Luther King Jr. Advising and Counseling Program in the College of Liberal Arts, which I ended up directing um, for three of its early years, yeah. or, or a couple of the major institutional mm-hmm. outcomes of the takeover. But it, in many ways, it helped uh, helped dramatically change uh, life at the university because yeah. part of the repercussions of it over the next few years a number of other new curricular initiatives were produced that included the, the, the development of the very first uh, American Indian Studies oh, wow. department in the country, the creation of a, of a Chicano Studies program, women's mm-hmm. studies, all came in the wake of the, uh, of the Moral Hall takeover. Yeah, wow, that's just absolutely incredible. Um, the thing I wanted to ask you about was the scholarships, because is it uh, correct that uh, black students did not have access to scholarships before you made that demand? Well, most, the primary avenue into the university up to that point had been through the General College, okay. which had, of course, been created back in the 1930s during the Depression years as an open admissions unit on campus, in part kind of serving the functions that, uh, that later community colleges would serve and so on. Um, but uh, uh, there were very few black students, again, who were eligible for the limited array of scholarships okay. that were, were, were offered to, st- to students campus-wide during those years and oftentimes weren't aware, aware of what, in fact, those scholarship opportunities were and so yeah. on. This is where, again, the advising counseling mm-hmm. uh, matters plus the admission process. The university had no, uh, uh, no recruitment agenda, no, no efforts had been in place to recruit students mm-hmm. from African American, Native American, um, uh, Latino communities mm-hmm. uh, prior to this time. Mm. Wow, that's that's. I'm just those seven demands were good demands then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually I actually spent a summer. Um, on the very first uh, recruiting team that went out. We went door to door oh, wow. in black and Native American and Hispanic and poor white communities mm-hmm. uh, recruiting students and trying to, to uh, provide uh, information about admissions policies and practices and, and scholarship and uh, other kinds of, of opportunities. Here in the Twin Cities you Here did that? Here in the Twin Cities, yes. Wow, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, and uh, the one of the things I thought was really uh, awesome then is that, you know, you get the University of Minnesota to establish this uh, African-American Studies and African Studies Department, and then you got to go to Carleton and establish one, right? Yes. Well, yeah. I, I had uh, one of the great things that happened for me as a student uh, while I was there. I had, I had graduated from the Institute of Technology with a degree in electrical engineering, yeah. and I had originally... The original plan was then to get a master's, an MBA degree, so an engineering degree, an MBA combination. But I had spent the uh, the summers while I was an undergraduate working for a variety of local corporations for Western Electric, which is a supply division of the old Bell uh, yeah. telephone system, uh, as an installer in telephone offices and so on and so forth. I'd worked for Northern States Power as a technical assistant on computer studies, and I'd worked as a research lab assistant for Peco Photo, a photo processing mm-hmm. company in Golden Valley. So I'd had a good exposure, again, to the, uh, the professional world of, of electrical engineering and, mm-hmm. uh, and high tech, and uh, discovered that uh, while I was certainly able to do those kinds of things, my passions 
were increasingly being, being pulled in other directions. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, uh, one of the other forces that worked during those years, of course, was the Vietnam War. Sure. And the students these days, uh, in the days here of, of, uh, of the, uh, vo quote, volunteer, unquote, army, yeah. don't have to face is that all male students at that time were subject to the draft. And we were, mm -hmm. of course, in the midst of the Vietnam War. So the draft that hung over us uh, the entire time of our, right. during our undergraduate years. And so I've been wrestling with that as well. I ultimately um, was able to extend my time uh, for a year as an undergraduate mm -hmm. beyond what would initially have been my graduation rate. And I had uh, only a course or two in, in science to take. I spent the time taking courses across the liberal arts and the arts and humanities mm -hmm. and philosophy and politics and history and religion and mm -hmm. so on and found that uh, uh, my passion was really in that arena and in you know, the emerging area of African and Afro-American studies, although mm -hmm. there were no programs as right. such in place and the university had comparatively few things in place. But by the time I graduated and with the creation of the Department of African-American and African Studies, what also came along was a, an innovative program in the history of African peoples, a graduate program in the history of African okay. peoples. And ultimately, as a graduate student, I was able to, to create a kind of a hybrid program, a blend between the university's already long-established and first-rate program in American studies mm -hmm. and the history of African peoples. And mm -hmm. that became a home for me that uh, gave me a chance to study uh, the culture and history of African peoples globally. Wow. And it also it became one of the, uh, the reasons why uh, I uh, ended up... Uh, being called, recruited uh, by the, the dean of Carleton College mm -hmm. to come to Carleton to initiate a, a, a major program in Afro-American and African studies there because black students at Carleton College um, were, again, following the, the, this, this pattern increasingly across the country and insisting that the Carleton curriculum uh, include those kind of programs. Mm -hmm. So I went to Carleton. In fact, uh, Paul Wellstone and I started at Carleton at the same time oh, wow. during those years. Uh, Paul came as a young Jewish radical into a comparatively conservative political science department, and his mission was to create an, an urban studies program, a Chicago-based urban studies program. Okay. He had ties then to Jesse Jackson's push programs and so okay. forth there. At any rate, anyway, he, so he, Paul came to create an urban studies program, and I had to create the program in Afro-American African Studies. So we collaborated a lot during the 10 years that uh, I was there at the Carleton yeah. campus. Okay. Oh, wow. Was Carleton then, do you think, uh, maybe the second place in the state to have that program, a, a program like it, or were there other schools that uh, were, tr were trying to do that too? I'm, that I'm not absolutely. I'm not. Okay. I'm absolutely certain. Certainly, it was early sure. in the the process because mm -hmm. we had the, the the major in place at Carleton by 1974. Okay. The, yeah, the year wow. after the year after I started yep. uh, there, so uh, that certainly mm -hmm. would have been early in terms of this, the, the the landscape here mm -hmm. in the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because of course now it's commonplace as it should be. Uh, you know, every culture has a right to to study their history, and uh, it's just um, really uh, fascinating to hear about just the development of of that in the late '60s, early '70s to have these programs. Um, I do want to ask you because uh, you know, obviously, then teaching has become a very big part of your life, and I just wanted to ask you what you really enjoyed about that part of it, um, especially establishing these programs and literally teaching some of these things for the first time to right. students that were hungry for it. So, yeah. Well, there's a little bit of irony here in part in terms of my uh, teaching career, part because although I came from a family in which there were many teachers, as I say, my, my, my mother had taught uh, uh, across uh, the, the north side right. here for, for many, many years, was yeah. part of a small group of black students, uh, black teachers in the Minneapolis school systems. Um, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s and so forth. And despite the fact that my aunt, who I alluded to earlier on here, had ultimately become a pr professor of mathematics yeah. at one of the historically black uh, colleges and universities in the South, at Savannah State College in, oh, nice. in, uh, in Georgia. And I had uncles who taught at Howard University mm -hmm. and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I had never thought about teaching as a career, and I hadn't been pushed in that direction. 
But, you know, my own array of, of interests and what other, what other kinds of aptitudes and capacities ultimately, um, you know, led me in that direction. And I, in fact, was pushed by one of my graduate uh, instructors. In fact, one of my, my dissertation advisor, Chet Anderson, in the English department at the University of Minnesota, to take over a pioneering course on black literature that okay. he had been teaching in the English department for a few years. He, uh, he believed that I was much better qualified than he to do it. And I actually began teaching African-American literature as a graduate student at the university. Okay. This is two years prior to going to, prior to, going to Carleton. But sure. you know, by then, the mold was, was very much set for me. And I'd had a number of, of superb teachers uh, who basically you know, gave me a kind of new um, model or example of uh, uh, one way to lead one's life and to do mm -hmm. what one really enjoys and is engaged by and to make a living doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about then, I mean, because you're, you know, you're retiring after all this time in, in also the English department. Um, uh, I'd love to know a little bit about your relationship with Langston Hughes and how you went on to tour with uh, ask your mama. I'd love to hear about that. Well, that opens up a whole another another terrain. <laughs> Good. And, you know, my my engagement with uh, with Langston Hughes and um, his jazz world, in part, grows out of again my my teaching on the, early on teaching African American literature and cultural and intellectual history. The Harlem Renaissance mm -hmm. became a, a a point of focus for me very early on. Okay. And. Uh, Langston Hughes, of course, is one of the central figures mm -hmm. of the Harlem Renaissance and really the first jazz and blues poet. Right. Who had, uh, whose very first book, The Weary Blues, had appeared in 1926, again, at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. the same year of the, uh, the famous Battle of the Bands that pitted yeah. Fletcher Henderson and mm -hmm. Ellington and Cab Calloway and so many others yeah. in the process, the same year that... Uh, that uh, um, um, W. C. Handy's Blues an anthology was pop was published, wow. and so on. So Langston is is you know would become a central interest for me both because of his broad literary skills and because mm -hmm. of his intense and lifelong interest in jazz and and blues traditions. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the link again to the later to the Langston Hughes project that I created at the university comes through the, the Archie Gibbons Senior Collection of African American Literature and Life, for which I am the founding scholar. Okay. When I came back to the university, after I was lured back to the university after, after a decade at Carleton, I came back and became the, uh, the chair of the Department of African American and African Studies. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things I'd done while at Carleton was I had spent a significant amount of time at major archives of African American literature and culture in other parts of the country. Cool. So that meant at places like Howard University, the Moreland Spingarn collection at Howard University, okay. um, Atlanta University's uh, archives and library collections, at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, uh, in, in uh, part of the New York Public Libraries, and at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, where I spent. Uh, uh, some years again as a research fellow, okay. and I had become very, very much enamored of these kinds of archives. And there's nothing like it at the University of Minnesota. Okay. So one of my uh, missions as as department chair at Minnesota was to 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 see if it was be possible to create an archive of African Americana at the university, mm -hmm. rare books ephemera, correspondence, periodicals, sure. manuscripts, et cetera, that could serve both the needs of professional scholars and the local community. Okay. And that's uh, where the process, again, of acquiring the, uh, the collection that was first called the Black Literature Collection, but then be would become the Archie Gibbons Senior Collection. That okay. process began. Neat. And that was in 1985. Okay. When uh, I, in part, uh, I had helped a, a young black woman student of mine, one of my African-American literature classes, get a job working in special collections at the university. 
uh, Amy Russell uh, was her name. And uh, Amy loved working with the, the books and manuscripts uh, there and so on. And one day contacted me and told me that uh, a catalog for a large private collection of African-American literature had arrived at the university, hmm. but that the, the, uh, the, arch- the archivist there had essentially put it aside because there was no uh, existing such collection to, sure. to which it might be added and no established advocacy, uh, advocacy group on campus mm-hmm. to uh, 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 you know, promote it. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, she, she said, Professor Wright, uh, I, I think you should, you should come and, and uh, take a look. And I did. And it was, again, a collection of a uh, Richard Lee Hoffman, a white playwright and community college teacher in Brooklyn, New York, who had begun collecting African-American texts and manuscripts and books in the 1950s. Huh and had amassed one of the largest uh, such private collections in the country and first editions of major, major works of the, of the Harlem Renaissance. Wow. Um, including, I mean, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and County Cullen, the list goes yeah. on and on, plus all kinds of ephemera and jacket art and so on. So it was a m- marvelous potential opportunity. And I then uh, uh, contacted the dean of the College of Liberal Arts then, who was Fred Lukerman, and said and told him that we had a very rare opp- opportunity in terms of trying to acquire mm-hmm. a collection like this as a foundation for building an African Americana archive at the university. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Keller was president of the university at the time, and we ultimately would meet with him. But we first assembled assembled a group of, of African American uh, staff and alumni, and then ultimately community representatives oh, cool. to yeah. talk about this whole enterprise that would ultimately lead to, uh, on the one hand, the university and, and the president um, uh, pr- providing the funds to enable us to acqui- first acquire the, 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 the collection mm-hmm. uh, provisionally, depending on a fundraising effort mm-hmm. to compensate the university for the original expense of acquiring the collection. Okay. And in that context, again, with the help of, of then university staff people like Claudia Wallace Gardner and Leroy Gardner, and of alumni, active alumni, and Gopher Varsity athlete mm. uh, um, alumni like Ezell Jones and many others, uh, we were able to create uh, a, a, a partnership between the university and the African American community, the civic and business leadership community, and a patrons council who provided the funds to acquire this Givens collection. Okay. And from the outset, it had a uh, expansive uh, outreach mission, both locally and nationally. Sure. And uh, we, from the beginning, dedicated ourselves to teacher training projects, mm-hmm. trying to get African-American literature and curricula into the schools, um, to uh, mounting public exhibits. We were ultimately able to get a, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to create the first touring exhibition on the Harlem Renaissance called A Stronger Soul Within a Finer Frame, which toured the nation from 1988 to 1991. And this was done in partnership with the Weissman Museum on campus. One of the things that, that, that happened in the once has acquires an, an archive like this is that uh, once the word gets out, you begin to get uh, um, offers and correspondence with collectors and archives elsewhere. In that mm-hmm. context, we acquired, um, not long after we got the collection, uh, manuscripts from a, 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 a Dutch uh, correspondent and friend of Langston Hughes. <coughs> and they were manuscripts of, of, uh, of one of Hughes's very late and most ambitious poetic projects. And this was Ask Your Mama 12 Moods for Jazz, um, which uh, would be one of, of, of two major late returns to poetry as a, as a primary focus for Langston after he oh. had been pulled in a variety of directions earlier in terms of writing short stories and mm-hmm. plays and librettos and so forth. Langston had always seen himself primarily as a poet. Sure. It's very difficult. It's always been very difficult <coughs> to make a living as a poet in this country. <laughs> yes. But late in life, uh, he'd become more financially secure. He was able to return 
to poetry. To poetry. And he, t- he had two, t- wrote two volumes, one called Montage of a Dream Deferred, which he mm-hmm. dedicated to his very close friends, Ralph and Fanny Ellison, and Ask Your Mama 12 Moods for Jazz, yeah. which came out of Langston's role in the, 19, in the ill-fated 1960 Newport Jazz Festival. Really? Where Langston was uh, an, an MC for the group in a, a year in which uh, the, the Newport Jazz Festival had one of the most amazing aggregations of, of dra- jazz performers imaginable. Yeah. Um, but uh, that year, the, <laughs> the, the uh, demand for access to the Newport Jazz Festival had been so intense that they ran out of tickets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> long before the, the crowd clamoring could be satisfied. Sure. And a crowd of uh, some 3,000 jazz-crazed, jazz-mad fans, as the newspapers described it, essentially went on a rampage uh, because they couldn't get tickets. And the National Guard was called out in Newport. Of course, Newport was a bastion of East Coast Wasp High Society. Definitely. Okay. Uh, at any rate, the National Guard had to be called out, so forth, and the and the festival was can was then canceled, and Langston had to preside over the last session, okay. in, a, in a kind of an amazing closing playbill with some of the great blues performers who were there at the festival. Also, they included uh, Muddy Waters, oh, um, you know, for instance, and Otis Spann, and cool. um, uh, you know several other, several others here as well, and uh, Langston improvised a. Blues, they, 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 the goodbye Newport blues on the spot for all this. But he went home, and that night began musing on what had happened at this Newport Jazz Festival and on what was also happening in the world around him at the time, because 1960 was a major year in terms of the struggles for freedom around the world and the black world in particular. It's the year of the emergence of a number of major former European colonies in Africa and the Caribbean, elsewhere, mm-hmm. so forth, from colonial dependence to independence. Yep. Excuse me for just a minute. I'm yes. sorry. <coughs> I have this tickle in my throat. It won't yeah. let up. <coughs> I, uh, this is actually my 30th day without a cigarette. Oh, well, quit con- smoking. So, Congratu- congratulations you. on that. Congratulations it's, on that. But I, I get these tickles from time to time. I think it's just you know, trying to heal myself. But it's not conducive for radio. <laughs> <coughs> but yeah, thirty days. So I'm sorry about that. No, no, that's, that's quite all right. I hope this uh, will this will pass. Oh, it will. We hope. I'm over that. Yeah. At any rate, Langston <laughs> began in meditating on the fate of the. The jazz festival on the one hand, and this global struggle for freedom on the other, and yeah. on the links between the musical world on the one hand and the the the, 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 the politics of the struggle, the global struggle for freedom. 1960 is also again a pivotal year in terms of the civil rights movement in this country, as well. <laughs> and so he conceived that the idea for a, this grand suite or sequence of jazz poems all right, yeah. in 12 moods um, on the, a theme drawn from African-American vernacular culture from the world of the Dirty Dozens, Ask Your Mama, all right? yeah. 12 moods for jazz, this raw, ribald, street corner, verbal poetry and dueling mm-hmm. terrain. And he conceived what would you know, ultimately then become um, an over 800-line poem that was scored from the, out, from the outset for musical accompaniment. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that Langston had begun performing his poetry to music back in the 1920s. Yeah. And, he'd had, and he'd actually uh, recorded some albums um, <clears throat> with uh, several musicians earlier on, most notably with Charlie Mingus, oh. the great uh, jazz yeah. bassist. Um, and in collab- a couple of the uh, collaborations as well in terms of performing his work to, to jazz and to blues. And he now, as he worked on Ask Your Mama, um, again, wrote liner notes 
for it. Yeah. And musical cues and spaces for improvisation, so on. Initially planned to collaborate again with Lang with, with, with Charles Mingus okay. on a stage production of Ask Your Mama. Mm-hmm. Um, that ultimately didn't happen. They weren't able to do this before Langston's death in 1967. Um, yeah. But uh, the idea was there. And, again, we had acquired, again, from this Dutch correspondent of Langston's actual typescript copies of the manuscripts for Ask Your Mama. So I then began thinking about uh, the opportunities for trying to, to, to put it actually into performance. Yeah. And in terms of a local connection here, the first opportunity came um, through the early and unfortunate death of my friend and colleague, Reginald Buckner. Okay who was the founder of the Jazz Studies program at the university and a member of Afro-American and African Studies here as well. And Re- Reggie had died in, in 1989. Mm. And um, I then uh, engaged some of my fr- local friends, uh, musician friends locally here, uh, Frank Wharton, who was a very versatile uh, uh, performer, jazz musician who taught uh, music and jazz at uh, St. Paul Central, mm-hmm. so a Mensa, Ghanaian drummer, um, music teacher, and so forth. Uh, we performed some of the moods for Ask Your Mama in a memorial service for uh, uh, Reginald Buckner oh, okay. at the, uh, the School of Music on campus uh, in 1989. Oh. And then I began thinking again with, uh, with, uh, with Frank in particular about performing the whole suite of jazz poems at some of the local jazz clubs here around town, places like Ruby's Cabaret and others we had in, in, in consideration at the time. Cool. But ultimately, uh, the, the first full chance to, to, uh, to bring Ask Your Mama uh, to, to stage came with the opening of the Weissman Museum okay. in 1993. The uh, Weissman Museum, again, um, that... Uh, um, you know, had created this new Frank Geary designed Wonderland building on the banks of the Mississippi, and uh, you know they were looking for uh, you know arts-related activities and performances to mm-hmm. help uh, frame the opening of the Weissman Museum. And in that context, uh, Colleen Sheehy, who was uh, uh, assistant director of the, of the museum, asked me. Uh, whether or not it was possibly possible to mount the uh, the the Hughes suite um, at the Weissman as part of that process, and so wow. I then um, brought the University Jazz Quartet uh, into the into the fray mm-hmm. and added a third dimension to Langston's original music and poetry ensemble. Added a third dimension of visuals. Cool. Um, of, 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 of photography, mm-hmm. Payne Langston also had a uh, montagist's interest again in all the the the, the cross breedings of the arts and of imagery and music and so yeah. forth to bear. And so we did that as part of the the uh, the opening of the Weissman Museum. That started the process, whereby eventually we began performing regionally elsewhere and then nationally and for more than a decade we toured the country doing performances of wow. Ask Your Mama 12 Moods for Jazz, conducting jazz clinics and workshops in process at the same time that I did uh, training workshops for teachers and students on the Harlem Renaissance and so on. Mm-hmm. When did your love for jazz start? In the family living room. My, my <laughs> father was a jazz lover of the first order, he had a huge collection of his fa- favorite jazz performers who ranged again from uh, F- Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington to uh, Errol Garner and Nat Cole, even Johnny Mathis again, who began and early on in part uh, as a jazz performer, yep. so forth. All you know, part of the the. Uh, the music here on the home front. Mm-hmm. So the, while I was, you know, pretty young and didn't have any, was not very sophisticated. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my father's jazz music and albums were there around the house for me to listen to along the way, mm-hmm. along with other kinds of music that he was also drawn to. My father had spent five years during the Second World War abroad in Germany, Italy, and North Africa, and in Italy had fallen in love with opera. 
Wow. So um, he had also had a huge opera collection. So I was alongside wow. Fat Waller and Ellington and Louis Armstrong. I also heard Puccini and Verdi and Donizetti and other major mm-hmm. um, uh, opera composers as in part of the mix. Wow, that's that's a uh, my uh, background. Not only is in jazz, but uh, quite a bit in classical music as well. And opera, <coughs> opera is always its own thing, you know, when you think classical music and opera, but those two are are both very disparate, yet I can see how they could go quite well together, jazz and opera. Well, you know, the whole tradition, again, of classical jazz and of symphonic jazz mm-hmm. is there from very early on. Sure. And it was a very important dimension of the, of the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, Ellington himself, of course, is one of the, the, the great formulators, again, of symphonic jazz. Yeah. And his tone poems, again, which began, again, in the late 20s and early 30s, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, that would lead again to major suites later on, like Black, Brown, and Beige, yep. and so on. Again, yep. we're, we're in part involved in effort to 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 create from the materials of African American life program music or tone poems sure. that, re- that 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 captured musically. Mm-hmm. All right, the scenes, the tableaus, the events, the images yeah. of of ordinary life. Right, and I was I played a track this morning, um, a Bud Powell track, where he's just playing. He starts off playing this um, tune by C. P. E. Bach, uh, just very classical, and but then he grooves it up, and it's just the most amazing thing ever, you know. And, and I mean, I've got Bach tattooed on my arm, like I love <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach, and and just that Bud Powell took. I, I've always been so. Um, in love with that part of jazz or classical music, where there are either jazz musicians who fall in who fall in love and feel like they need to study classical music, or classical musicians who do the same thing, where they're like, "This whole world of jazz, I have to know this." And then when people like Ellington or anybody in the modern jazz quartet or anybody is like, "Let's blend, let's let's bring in some elements from classical music yeah. into jazz, so we can do this our way," and you know, when classical music musicians do the same thing, vice versa. I, I just, I think that's wonderful. And, and um, all that crossover where, you know, they're bringing in what they've learned and making it work for, making it their own is what I mean. You know, right, I just. Right. Well, for, for me, one of the other big, big influences in terms of my understanding the jazz tradition in a more sophisticated way came from another writer. Okay. From Ralph Ellison, who I mentioned earlier yeah. on. who was a very, very close friend of of, of Langston Hughes and who himself, although we think about Ellison now primarily, of course, as a novelist, as the creator of, of one of the great novels of the 20th century, Invisible Man, yeah. Ralph had begun his career as a, as a musician, huh. all right, okay. as a trumpeter, and who had both a classical and vernacular uh, background, yeah. both in, in, in the classroom contexts in Oklahoma City, where he had grown up, and his huh. contacts with the whole Kansas City uh, uh, an Oklahoma jazz yeah. circuit. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, Ellison early on had become enamored uh, with an Ellingtonian kind of symphonic jazz approach to trying to, to bring the world of the vernacular yeah. uh, again into the, the, the world of, of formal jazz composition <sighs> and performance. And, yeah. a, and Ellison was one of the most sophisticated critics and commentators on the jazz tradition of all. Oh, wow. And Ellison's collection of essays, Shadow and Act, okay. uh, which contains many pivotal essays on the jazz tradition, and is actually one of the, the, the conceptual cornerstones of Ken Burns's later jazz no series. Yeah. Several of the commentators for that series, people are basically articulating an Ellisonian approach to jazz huh. history and tradition. But okay. Ellison's, you know, Ellison's uh, writings on, on on jazz and and music were were profoundly important for me in terms of being able to wow. to, to think about it again uh, in a scholarly way, but also experientially. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be reading all of that. I feel like I feel like I'm going to school today. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about some of your favorite jazz musicians, then. Well, they run the gamut. Sure. I, they, they certainly run the gamut again. And, 
you know, I think, as you know, in terms of music, particularly as you get older, you're aware of how, you know, your musical tastes change with age. Yes. And (laughs) uh, music that may have appealed mightily to you at one point in life, uh, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, loses its luster and something else takes its place. Mm But, you know, the, the music of my formative, my adolescent years and years of early manhood, again, this, this is the, uh, the, the, the 1960s and early 1970s. Right. Yeah. And that's a, very, that's a fascinating period in terms, in terms of jazz history. Very. Uh, because, it, you know, it, it includes, of course, the, uh, um, you know, the, the still powerful influence of, of bop and cool jazz, mm-hmm. all right, and figures like Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and obviously John Coltrane, mm-hmm. uh, Ornette Coleman, yeah. Mingus, and all the rest, as yeah. well as the uh, the, the new you know, kinds of experimental jazz, the avant-garde jazz that emerges in the 1960s and early 1970s, and mm-hmm. it comes out of, out of uh, in part, the black arts movement connections Okay. with jazz yeah. during those years. Uh, so, you know, I was you know, listening to all of those things. At the same time, of course, I was deeply I- embedded again as a student with, uh, with R&B and with classic soul mm. music and with the fusions that are begin to develop yeah. between the streams of jazz and uh, R&B and funk and mm-hmm. the music, again, the, the worlds of, of Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and mm-hmm. Nina Simone and... Uh, uh, James Brown and all the rest, and the Motown singers, and so on. So all of that's is part of the, the mix for me. Uh, you know, during uh, those years. So mm-hmm. um, I I have a huge collection of I have about twenty five feet, of wow. of LPs <laughs> sitting in storage now. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> in part are a measure of 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 my uh, ongoing immersion and indulgence mm-hmm. in. Uh, these musical traditions. Yeah. Did you ever play anything, or are you just a music lover? Well, my mother did her best <laughs> early on to get all of us to play. She bought a piano, hired yeah. a music teacher, and tried to get me and my sister and one of my younger brothers to play. Yeah. My sister held uh, to it longest. Okay. But at that age, I was probably you know, 10, 11 years old and so on, so I was more interested in in baseball and sure. football and basketball than sitting in the parlor at the music thing. So I didn't, it didn't take. <laughs> yeah. later, later on in college, um, I, as I tell friends here, I abused an acoustic guitar for a while. Nice. Um, but but the, not, not long enough to develop the kind of proficiency yes. you know, that, that I heard on recordings of, of my favorite Mm-hmm. You know, jazz guitar guitarists and performers, or, mm-hmm. or blues uh, right. guitarists and so forth, because blues gu- guitarists mm-hmm. like BB King, yeah, so forth, were, were enormously influential on me, as well as figures like Wes Montgomery, and then of course later George Benson and Earl Clue again, mm-hmm. whose uh, you know work I listen to a lot. In fact, these days one of the things I do with some regularity, one my younger brother, uh, who lives uh, in Charleston uh, and on Kiowa Island. Um, for the last now eight, almost ten years now, mm-hmm. Earl Clue has mounted a jazz festival in the fall on Kiowa Island. Nice. And so we regularly make pilgrimages down for the Earl Clue Jazz awesome. Festival on on Kiowa. So that's you know that's one of my ongoing connections again with the world of mm-hmm. of, of of jazz mm-hmm. guitar. Yeah. I, I uh, interviewed uh, uh, Kevin Eubanks, who's a guitarist, uh, yesterday, yeah, and for. Right. Almost 20 years, he he did the Tonight Show band, but uh, uh, he and I ended up talking much longer than we had planned, which was amazing because I'm a huge fan of him. But uh, he uh, he was talking about how the blues has disappeared from jazz, and and so we had this really interesting conversation about the segregation of blues from jazz, and how he's he wants his next album to be just really like bluesy and stuff. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, it makes it makes some sense giving. Given where where blues is at the moment in mm. terms of our culture and jazz as well, and uh, in, in, in terms of the, in the marketplace on the one hand and yeah. musical sensibilities at large, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, for, for a Langston Hughes, the the boundaries in, between blues and jazz are kind of very very fluid, yeah. and closely aligned, and there's still large performing audi- audiences 
for Ask Your Mama's fusion again of blues and jazz, also with other uh, African, African-American music forms nice. like calypso and later reggae and so on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, these days the, the blues world and the venues for blues are much narrower than they used to be. And we right. only have to look at, the, at, at our local scene here in terms of the, the blues clubs and joints. Again, during my years as a student, there were a number of places uh, you could go to to listen to blues on a regular yeah. Basis. Sure. And very few of those clubs still um, survive huh. now. So, you know, with the Walebskis and the Caboos. Yeah. Well, the Caboos is still. Caboos is the, here. The, they're the, not the, playing the blues. Caboos <laughs> are still, but they're not right. But they're not playing blues. No. Um, you know, Archie's Bunker, um, uh, the old Cozy Bar, yeah. and the Peacock, and so forth. Mm. Wow. Uh, used to be places in, in, in Minneapolis. And in St. Paul, Arnella's and uh, the VFW and so were places where you could go and, and hear blues, not necessarily in a concert context, sure. but in yeah. a but in a you know a, a bar or a saloon kind of setting. Yeah. Very few of those places survive now, and yeah. you know the airwaves, the music, the music airwaves, now are so highly segmented. Yep. Yeah. That, uh, you know, unless you listen specifically to a blues channel. Right. You're not likely to hear mm-hmm. blues, even the contemporary blues. And blues, if you can, we go down to Chicago. And again, as a student, we used to make, <laughs> uh, I used to make regular pilgrimages to Chicago Sh- on oh, the weekends yeah. to go to the South Side to visit uh, the blues clubs and nice. and, ha- and hang out and party and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that uh, it's just simply not... Uh, uh, accessible now in the way that it was yeah. at an earlier point in time. So you have to, you have to really be an aficionado to, to draw, you know, to be drawn to it. And something I discovered yeah. in terms of my classes, because when I query my classes here about their acquaintance you know, with the blues tradition or yeah. with jazz, right. Right, yeah. it's all kinds very very limited uh, these days. Very and, much. and one of the challenges for us as teachers and as uh, broadcast communicators, so forth, is to is to try to to pull uh, young people in particular out of s- some of the these segmented segmented market pigeonholes yeah. and to, to, to see things in broader right. spectrum yeah. uh, because the world of hip hop and 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 rap mm-hmm. contemporary pop music the roots of these things all can be traced back to different aspects of the blues and jazz tradition sure I, yeah definitely yeah and i i love the all the crossover that's happening now too i I was in the classical music world for about a decade and, and really ignored jazz. And when I came back to jazz a few years ago and started hearing all of this crossover with hip-hop and jazz, I there's a lot of bad out there, <laughs> just people doing it just because it's the thing to do. But there's also so much just great crossover, and I love that happening in jazz. I, I mean, and jazz has been doing that with every genre of music. They, they're bringing in, you know, just all the third stream with the crossover yeah. Class, it, it, I love it. I think it's. Yeah, I think it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and I think too, it's an avenue for young people, white or black or whatever, to get into jazz. You know, yeah, to yeah. hear the music they love. And yeah. Yeah. one of the things I think that we ought to give closer attention to, in terms of introducing young people to these worlds, is the amazing array of of of, of documentary film yeah. on jazz and blue traditions that are now available. So much. Uh, Yes, there's so much, yeah. and for a generation of young people who increasingly are watchers mm-hmm. rather than readers, yeah, that may be a more natural avenue to to connecting them to the jazz and blues worlds, definitely than than otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just this past week, the screening of Stanley Nelson's new documentary film, Miles Davis: yep. The Birth of the Cool, is a is a wonderful example. Yeah. It's, it's a superb documentary on on Miles Davis that mm. gives one a, a, a sense of his evolution as an artist at the same time as that it deals with his personal and political lives and mm-hmm. so forth in a comprehensive, holistic, I think a very healthy way. And yeah. there are a large number now, again, of, of wonderful films on the jazz tradition. You can build a course very easily just around uh, films, documentary films on the jazz tradition. And it's figures not a bad idea <laughs> um, I've I've uh, kept you quite quite a long time here and I've got somebody waiting I did not imagine it would go that quickly 
Um, and there are a thousand things I still want to speak with you about, and it's going to have to wait until next time. But I do want to ask you what you really want to say, what I didn't ask you that you wish I would have, or just, you know, any any final thoughts, I guess, um, from from you. Well, Langston Hughes thought about jazz. He used a variety of metaphors. His most common metaphor was oceanic, oceanic. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Again, Langston had titled his first autobiography, The Big Sea. Oh, wow. Okay. And thinking about life in this oceanic way. He thought about jazz metaphorically as oceanic. And that served a variety of kind of functions, all right, because the ocean, of course, as, as essentially a source, the original source yeah. of life. Yeah. All right, on the one hand, is of course, is this vast reservoir of possibilities, of sonic possibilities, emotional possibilities, and so on. And so I guess, you know, that uh, Langston's metaphor, I think, you know, still serves me well and might serve other folks as well to think about jazz and life again mm -hmm. as an ocean, as a big sea. Wonderful. Dr. John Wright, what a pleasure it was to speak with you today. I learned a lot. I really wish I could have coffee with you once a week to learn more. I, I've very much appreciated speaking with oh, well, you. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure, Emily. I'm glad to, glad to, to be here, and perhaps I'll get a chance to continue this at another time. I hope so, and best of luck in retirement. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry that took so long. I, well, I just, that's all right. So you many know, questions. One of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about, I'm sure you're familiar with the um, with the KBEM series from the 90s on Twin Cities Jazz, remembered? I'm not, because I've only been here for a few years. Oh, oh my Yeah, goodness. and when was that, when was that, that series? That was the 90s. And I didn't live here either. Oh, I was in Colorado okay, and, right, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Dave Sletton and Kent Hazen okay. were the, uh, the, the forces behind this. This is a series on the history of a KBM mm -hmm. a series, started probably 12 or, th 12 or 15 segments of it, in which they brought together all of these then live and functioning musicians yeah. who were part of the jazz tradition for radio interviews and conversations. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. an amazing enterprise. Mm. And ultimately, they had these grand plans to have all of these interviews transcribed, and oh, wow. so, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Dave died comparatively early on. Oh. And the archives and so forth ended up over in the Minnesota Historical Society, where they are still today. Really? Um, so um, there, a, a book that the Minnesota Historical Society Press published called Joined at the Hip, yeah. which is a history of the, of, the, of the Minnesota jazz scene, okay. uh, depended in a, in a major way on that KBEM wow. Twin Cities Jazz Remembered series. Okay. But uh, I, like uh, um, uh, uh, the author Jay Gettinger, uh, the author of that book, um, okay. would strongly advocate that we need to get something in motion to get the resources to have that series yeah. perhaps remounted on the air yeah. and certainly to have all those interviews online on, on, at least. on, on yeah you know, transcribed and available for yeah. public consumption so that's well a, let's continue that conversation, a, yeah, conversation for sure because another, yeah. we should be able to do something about that that would be uh, yeah yeah if you're not for me boy yeah yeah no that would be amazing I don't know if it's ever had it's in terms of rebroadcast of that series or not but yeah yeah, I'll, uh, I'll ask around about that, for sure. Yeah. All right, now, one of the things I, I do uh, uh, ask, uh, 